Ricardo. Welcome back to Moments of Leadership. I took a little time off for Christmas vacation and New Year's, but I was recording some episodes and I've actually got some some great episodes in the hopper. I'll get to, to those in a second, but I wanted to start off by saying thanks to all the new subscribers. I've got some subscribers and some donors, uh, Richard Knight, I hope I pronounced that right, Trevor Hall, Seamus Flynn, Sophia Ripa, Alexander Grandpre, who I feel like you have donated before, Captain James Winnefeld, United States Marine Corps type and uh, the son of Admiral Winnefeld who was on a previous episode of mine Richard Protzman, Renee Hill, Michael Rickaby and William Casey the fourth also some individual donors just one off really appreciate the generosity from my old friend Craig Zummer and Teague Pastel who is an artillery officer still uh, on active duty serving over there in the Pentagon really appreciate that Teague thank you very much uh, Mara Melendez, Stephen Summers, and Kevin Norton. Thank you, everybody, for helping to support the project. wanted to read a quick review that I got on Apple Podcasts. I'm reading this because I just want everybody to kind of hear. It's written by Striving to Do Better on January 5th, and it's titled Priceless Insight. I am a Lance Corporal for Context. I have listened to every episode and have found the insight into leadership absolutely invaluable. Even if every piece doesn't apply directly, it's nice to know the quote why and see the role that I play in the big picture. Not only does it help in a variety of ways to humanize leadership that so many people feel are out of touch, but also instills a level of confidence in those of us who were on the line of re-enlisting. Thank you for all the efforts you put into making moments in leadership. I recommend it constantly and your words aren't falling on deaf ears. Hey, thanks a lot, Lance Corporal. Uh, really appreciate that. And you're exactly the kind of person that I'm hoping to help out with this project. So just a quick note for everybody who doesn't follow me on Instagram or LinkedIn. Got some new t-shirts out there from phaseline.co. Put a link in the show notes below to his Instagram site. But he did a really great piece of artwork for me. And I put some quotes from three guests around the actual art graphic. And those are available. Again, you know, the link is in the show notes for the merch. I got some stickers with the same logo and quotes coming out on February 1st. And then I'm going to do some new t-shirts with some other quotes from previous guests coming out. I like the idea of supporting the veteran art, art community with uh, commissioning them to do some logos and stuff. Not really logos so much as like artwork to go on the t-shirt. And uh, a special thanks out to Mission Essential Gear. Again, their link is also in the show notes. Reagan Roberts, former Marine. So be sure to check them out and buy some merchandise, even if it's not mine, because all of that goes to support so much. One of the greatest things about Reagan is that he donates back to Patrol Base Abate. Quick note on some upcoming guests. I've got Captain Jean Marie Sullivan, United States Navy, who's going to be the first female or was is the first female officer to cut an episode here. We had a fantastic conversation. Uh, she's the incoming executive officer of the USS Wasp. I recently got a chance to sit down and record with Colonel Reggie McClam, who is the commanding officer of the basic school. That was a really fantastic episode, and we're editing that right now. I finished up recording with Lieutenant Greg, uh, sorry, <laughs> Lieutenant General Greg Newbold, former three-star general, obviously, was the MU commander for the Somalia, the initial going into Somalia. And we talk about that, some really interesting stories, especially if you're familiar with the video of the all the reporters, Christiana Amapur on the beach with all the lights and everything. 
he tells the inside baseball behind the scene story, which I've never heard before. And I can, I'm sure you've never heard it before either. So really awesome backstory on the press being on the beach. I have secured interviews with Vice Admiral Bill Mertz, who is a career submariner and uh, really excited to have him on because I'm just fascinated by the idea of command of a nuclear submarine underway. I have Colonel Steve Davis, who was General Alford's regimental commander when he was a battalion commander. He's coming on. Uh, Still trying to get Sergeant Major Ruiz from Marfor Res. He and I are going to sit down and actually do one face-to-face. Our travel schedules just have not linked up very well, so we're going to get together next time he's down at TBS, and I'll just sit down there and cut an episode with him. I got a note from the Comstrat people at Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps' office. He's going to come back on sometime this spring, so I'm excited about that. I had to postpone with General Sullivan. He's just been really busy. If you listen to General Alford's episode, General Sullivan took over for General Alford. You'll know that he has 18 or 19 subordinate commands, and it's just really tough to get his attention right now, and I understand his his schedule is super busy, so when he is available, we've decided we will get together, but he's just got some stuff going on, so I had to punt on that. And then, of course, I'd like to get another hot wash in here if I can herd all of those cats together for the same day sometime in March. So I'm trying to do that also. Hey, on this episode, just real quick, I'm sorry about the audio. I'm an idiot sometimes, a lot of times. And I was recording, I thought I was recording off of my really good microphone and ended up selecting the microphone that was attached to my webcam. So, I mean, you can hear me fine. It just doesn't sound as good. Okay. So finally for today's guest, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Parate, he graduated from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. He attended officer candidate school and was commissioned in 2002. After he completed the basic school, he reported to flight school in Pensacola, Florida, where he was designated a naval aviator in April of 2005. From there, he reported down to MAG-39 for initial training in the CH-46 Echo helicopter. And then in October of 2005, he reported over to HMM-268. And between 2005 and 2010, he deployed three times to Iraq in support of Iraqi freedom. In 2010, then Captain Parate went over, joined 1st Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company, one of my old favorite units there. And he deployed to Afghanistan in the spring of 2011 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, He was there as a forward air controller and a supporting arms liaison team leader, where he participated in combat operations alongside U.S. forces, U.K. forces, Danish, Lithuanian, Afghan forces, all through the northern region of the Helmand province. 2012, he reported over to MAG-39 for conversion training into the Huey, the new Yankee model. And then from there, joined HMLA-167, where he deployed again to Afghanistan. In 2015, then Major Parate deployed over to Okinawa as part of the UDP program. And then in 2017, he graduated with distinction from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And he also earned a Master of Cybersecurity from Brown University. From July of 2017 to 2020, Lieutenant Colonel Parate served as a staff officer and Global Force Management Section Head at Headquarters Marine Corps in PP&O, Plans, Policies, and Operations Division. In May of 2020, Lieutenant Colonel Parate reported over to MAG-39, served as the MAG-39 Executive Officer until 2021 when he assumed command of HMLA-267. Ura Stingers. Okay, so with that, welcome Lieutenant Colonel Michael Parate, Commanding Officer of HMLA-267. Stingers, and, and also you and I have gotten to know each other personally because I was... It was an honor to be asked to come out and be the guest of honor at your ball, which was such a fantastic time in 
God, your your entire squadron is just what a group of amazing men and women. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Dave. And it was an honor to have you at our ball. We definitely did it a little early, but we had a great time throughout. And uh, I think that uh, as is evident by the fact that I think you had an early flight. Was it I, 06 I the next morning? But I, I we were shutting the so bar early. down uh, the night before. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I tried. I tried to stay out as long as I could, but you know, right. my feet gave out before my uh, my will, my heart did. But uh, it was it was a really good time, and and I'm glad the Marines got to to do the ball before you took off for some of your operational commitments. So as an aviator, you know, you you go to the basic school, and then you end up down there at flight school. And and I'm wondering, clearly, I've never been to flight school, but I got to imagine that there is a lot of eye opening experiences that happen when you get down there, and you're a student. A student aviator, I don't know what the proper terminology is, right? But you're learning to fly an aircraft. That's not something you just get to call in every day. I mean, you're out there doing it. I'm wondering if if you've got some stories that you remember back from those early times, secondly, a year at flight school, that you look back at as a crystallizing moment and you just say to, say to yourself, wow, I just observed something that was so impactful. I will never forget that for the rest of my life. I would have to say almost daily that that occurred at that at that moment in time. You know, leaders are learners, and as an aviator in, in the aviation community, what's interesting is we don't get that many opportunities to to lead right out of you know TBS. There's a very few rare opportunities, and they usually involve the fact that you're waiting to do flight school. Mm-hmm. But our main job is to do the job to to learn your your craft, to learn your your airframe as best you can. So the technical side of that. And then later on, you learn the tactical side of that. And so obviously it's not until much later that you have to figure out how to, how to transition from the technical and tactical job or task to leading the people that are responsible for those technical and tactical jobs. I think for me, when I was at flight school, well, first I'll say the first thing you want to do is you were just trying not to, you're trying to survive right. at first. So I'd say don't die, don't get in trouble, either off base or, or you know, make sure you knew your stuff. And knowing your stuff cold, no matter how hard you studied as a, as a young buck, you really don't know anything. So you read what's in front of you and you think you got everything down, kind of a good portion of those flights. The point of it is to demonstrate that one particular skill, but then to show, you know, 10 others that you had never seen before. So from that perspective, it was really eye-opening. And having just come off of TBS a few uh, months earlier, because obviously you have to go uh, to some of the ground schools, and they do a, they did a thing at least at the time called IFS, where we flew around in a Cessna just to see if it was going to be worth your time if you wanted to fly. And for those who got that experience, it was, it was a great opportunity. After 25 hours, I was flying solo from Quantico to Richmond and back. Imagine that yeah. for a young guy thinking about independence, and uh, but that's not leadership, right? And I think a crystallizing moment for me was to watch how the instructors did their jobs. Many of them had, uh, you know, they'd all come from the fleet. They'd come from somewhere. This was 2003 that uh, I was down there for the vast majority of the time. And so that period of time, nobody had really come back from you know, Iraq or you know, Afghanistan or anything yet. I, there may have been one or two, but the uh, the experience was was largely you know four or five years at a minimum uh, of experience of fleet time. 
and the way those instructors carried themselves was very telling about what you wanted to do or what you clearly did not want to do uh, as a leader. I think one of the the things that that helped me out was I was very fortunate to have a kind of an on wing mm-hmm. that they, they break up flight school into primary and advanced. Uh, and in both instances, I had great on wings. They both happen to be Marines. The first on wing I, I had, I thought I, I knew my stuff at uh, one of these uh, these flights, you get into the brief and, and I get asked all these questions like I had for the first, you know, several. And then uh, he opened up a blank piece of paper and he said, all right, draw this system for me. And I had not been prepared to draw that particular system. And he basically said, hey, you really don't know what, what this is about to you. And I, and I had to say, no. Nah. And he's like, just from here on out, don't bullshit. Uh, if you're not sure, don't bullshit that. It goes towards your credibility. And I always remember that being credible is not just about what you do, you do know. It's how you uh, represent you know, what you don't know. Uh, and it's much better just to say, hey, look, I, I don't know the answer to that than just try to work through it and, and kind of half-ass it. Uh, so, unfortunately, I'd done well enough to, to go up and fly, did the flight, but uh, that was the big takeaway from that. And from then on out, just trying to make sure that, oh, man, whatever happens, I don't want that to happen again because it was not enjoyable just to be called out so bluntly, but absolutely fairly with regard to that, that particular day. Uh, so that, you know, that, that was probably one of the first things because it was a, it was actually not just a failure because the first thing you do is you see how other people operate, but it was a failure on my behalf in just a knowledge base uh, with regard to some of the systems, but it definitely made you realize that, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be a long couple months. And quite frankly, I think it took uh, over a year to do primary and advanced in that process. You really have to relearn how to learn. It's not just rote memorization. In many cases it is, but then you have to figure out how to apply that, you know, kinematically and, you know, stick and rudder skills. Because you can be really good in the books, but as soon as you get in the aircraft, if you can't figure out how to apply that stuff, then you're really not worth, uh, you're not worth too much at that point. So that was kind of another piece. So, How about, so you're down there, did you ever come across any of the, you called it an on-wing, is that the same thing as like an instructor pilot? Is that, is that your instructor? Is that what that term means? Yeah. It, so it's somebody that my daughter's got a big brother, big sister, you know, who's a, an upperclassman at her school. This is just a, an instructor that you're paired with for, it's for the first portion of your flight phase so that there's a degree of consistency. You're not having to relearn all the, the idiosyncrasies of that individual's leadership style. Okay. And quite frankly, it's very helpful, not just to the instructor because they they know where you need to work on, you know, what you need to work on and where, where, but, uh, to the, the student as well, they know how to basically where to prepare. They can develop a rapport with that, uh, that individual. And so is that person up in the aircraft with you too, when you're flying or is that just, yeah, absolutely. School? Okay. The first, I don't know, the first, maybe 10, 10 or 12 flights were exclusively with, uh, you know, your on wing. Mine happened to be a, a CH-53 Marine pilot, but it's not always a Marine. Sometimes you get uh, Navy or Coast Guard. I think in certain cases you get an Air Force folk, at least at the time you did. And this is back when they were flying uh, the T-34 still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. Cause, so I remember back when I was at TBS and there was always that, oh, I'd give anything to have your SPC over my SPC. Or there was a, how, how much did you see that at flight school where you say, gosh, I really wish that I had – an on-wing, like, 
my buddy Jim over there has, or were there on wings that you looked at and said like, gosh, I would really like to have him or be like him if I was ever an instructor or vice versa? So yeah, there were. Now, fortunately, like I said previously, I was really lucky. And I think the big, if there was one word I could use to emphasize why I liked my on-wing, for lack of a better characterization, it's just because they both cared. They cared enough to, to go out of their way to make sure that when I did fail, it wasn't permanent or fall short. Uh, it wasn't something that you couldn't recover from. They showed me uh, where, you know, in the past they had, you know, they had the tendency or pi- other pilots had the tendency to do certain things in the aircraft, uh, how to avoid those things. And it wasn't just what was in the books, what was in the air. Both of them were also teaching you how to, to present yourself as a Marine because you've been kind of cooped up at that point uh, amongst other Marines. And now you're in an organization that's not just U.S. Marines, but it's it's Navy personnel. It's it's uh, a Coast Guard. So you've got all these services within the DOD, within Homeland Security, and just how to perform in that environment when people are talking a different language than you at times. They were extremely helpful. But the ones that were not, I definitely had some you know friends. I had a roommate who did not like their their on wing at all. This individual looked at kind of everything as a you started rather than at at 100% work your way down. This guy, you started, you're, you're a failure and you've got to prove to me why I'm not going to down you um, or why we got to go fly. And that's not necessarily uh, a bad thing every now and then, but to do that day in, day out can can wear on an individual, not just their, their spirit, but just in terms of their anxiety levels are always much higher. I'm not sure that that's, that's something that in retrospect, they, they were proud of, but they certainly carried that out to, to full effect the, the years that I was there at the time that I saw them. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, are younger officers down at, at the basic school or, or lieutenants. And a lot of the previous episodes that I've recorded with people, I've asked questions like, you know, talk to me about what a, what a brand new second lieutenant walking into their platoon should be like. But none of that really applies to a young officer who's listening to this and is going to flight school. So for that audience, they're probably listening to you and hearing like, what kind of hack can I get? What kind of insight can I get in over flight school? So I'll ask the question in the context of like, knowing that that's what they want to hear right now. But sure, you, you mentioned the word being downed. I'm assuming that means somebody doesn't let you fly because you did something wrong or you failed a test or something like that. Can you tell some stories about, okay, two stories or two different things I'd like to hear from you is what are some of the things besides the obvious that would cause a downing, right? And and are those things recoverable? And then two, what are some things that you saw? What are some common characteristics of people who wash out of flight school? And I don't mean, you know, they got up in the airplane and they just couldn't fly or they were scared, but like judgment or things like that. What are some things that that really end up with, hey, you're out of here? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple different ways you can down a flight. There's downing a flight if you're in the aircraft at the time is usually something that if you do it, if it's safety related, there's the question has to, to come, hey, did you did you do it intentionally? Was it unintentional? Did you have the knowledge to know this? Did you did you properly apply a particular system or improperly apply a system? Or did you enter into a, a situation that uh, you just didn't fully understand. In that last scenario, that's uh, that's one that 
usually they'll call what, you know, they'll say either terminate the, the maneuver or perhaps a knock it off. If it's a knock it off, everybody's just going home. The, the maneuver was too egregious. And, and uh, at that point, we can sort it out on deck. If you're downing a flight because you don't have the knowledge. So in the case of the, the situation I was in early on, being asked these questions and being asked to draw a particular system, and I think it was the electrical system, so often they'll say, all right, you're a drop of fuel. Now walk me through where you know you go from entry of the, the fuel port to combustion or whatever the case is. If you fall short on that, it's a subjective decision by the instructor. And partly that's why there's value to the on-wing because you've developed a rapport. And if this is a one-off, uh, okay, maybe you got to figure out, okay, what's going on with this Marine? Is, is he having a bad day? Uh, is there something else going on in that individual make a mental note of that because later on in, in your Marine Corps career, that type of question becomes so important. And I still struggle with that at times because you get so caught up in the moment. If the individual were to, to down a flight because they didn't have enough knowledge, it's usually emotional experience for the student. The good instructors make sure that it's not an emotional experience on their behalf. The poor instructors exhibit emotion about that. And that's different from actually caring. Those that care don't necessarily have to exhibit emotion. It's when you make decisions based off of that, that emotion uh, is when I think you make, you tend to make poor decisions. I'd seen that occasionally and you'd be in a, they, they had these cubicles where you would brief. They had like little aircraft on sticks and stuff. And depending on where you were in the syllabus, you had to use those or you had to draw stuff out. Or sometimes for your, your final flight phase, you had to stand up and do some briefs and stuff. But every now and then, you know, four cubicles down, you would just hear somebody getting berated Oof. and, you know, dressed down, so to speak, to the extent that uh, reminded you of something that you'd, you'd see in a movie or, you know, potentially at, you know, something like OCS. I remember hearing about uh, one incident where the student basically was getting chased out of the building. This was a Navy instructor, and I remember his face clearly. I don't remember his name. But he was, you know, I could see the veins uh, in his neck as he was rushing by me. And that kind of stuff is obviously just completely unnecessary, particularly in that phase of flight uh, in a training environment like that. And I do remember who the, uh, the student was, uh, also an, a Navy ensign who was typically a good student, and also passed through flight school. I don't know what ended up happening to him, but uh, those kind of things, they obviously stick with you. I'll tell you this, I, there, were, there was a Marine down there at the time, Colonel Holsworth, and he was the Matzig CO. His call sign was Caveman. And uh, I actually flew with him in Iraq years later. And he was just about the most fantastic Marine because he was an extremely approachable Marine. He liked to brag about how he had gotten fired more times than he can remember. And I think his point was, I'd, I've always been hired one more time than I've been fired from a job because people realized as soon as they let go of him that, that he was kind of the only guy who could do that thing. He was very personable uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships, but the young Marines loved him. I know he's, he's retired. I think he's living down there now. And he used to tell this wonderful story about how I think he went to the Naval Academy and ended up graduating uh, the anchor. It got all that money, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the big joke was if you get close, you know, you got to be real careful. Do you go for the money or you just try to get real smart? He said there was no question, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that he was going to, 
he was going to be the anchor in that class. Uh, it was just a matter of whether or not he was going to graduate, I think. Uh, but the way he told the story was had a degree of humility to it, but it made you want to ask him questions and approach him. I looked at this guy and he's talking about, he would talk about almost exclusively either his failures or just something funny that he had seen and, and figure out how to apply that. What was interesting to me is here he is as a yeah, 06 commander of a training uh, unit informing the, uh, and, and molding and shaping the, not just Marines, but by default, just by his virtual presence, others in and around the area at the time, because they had a tie cutting ceremony for those, once you get past a, a certain phase, you get you go in, wear a tie, and they, they cut the tie. And based on how easy or hard you were to train, they uh, they cut your tie pretty high up or, or low down. And, and he would always tell stories at that tie-cutting ceremony. And it's it's a good time. It's a good event. There, but it was filled with all the different service, uh, the students from different services there. And they loved them. Uh, that's great. So kind of sticking with the aviation for a second, because I am kind of curious about this, but you ended up eventually becoming a CH-46 frog pilot. But that must have been at a time when it was clear that the Osprey was going to come on board. Am I, am I right about that timing? Or did you kind of the know? The Osprey or? had already come aboard on the East Coast. It had not deployed yet, but it was one of those things that everybody said was coming to the point that some of the captains had heard it enough that they felt it was kind of an eye roll, like, yeah, it's coming, but when? Right. It was new for me. So when I heard that the Osprey was coming, it was a real thing. And it wasn't this mysterious thing that was going to come off in, in another 20 years. It was on its way. It was, you know, effectively there. Just, I think that for my whole peer group, the question was, okay, at some point we will have to transition. When that is was the question, but it wasn't something that was, okay, maybe as a lieutenant colonel, do I do that? Or uh, is that even a thing, a major? I, I think people were under the impression that, okay, I'm going to get a deployment out, maybe two deployments, but at some point this new aircraft uh, with a new capability is coming and we're going to have to make a decision as individuals about whether or not we want to transition. And for me, you know, I saw it as a wonderful platform. It assumed many of the assault support roles uh, that the Marine Corps has today. You know, we we fly alongside it all the time now. Our, one of our, our sister squadrons at, at MAG-39 is right next to our hangar. And right next to them is a, is a second Marine Corps VMM. So we've got two right next to us. They do some wonderful things. In fact, VMM-364 is right next to us, the Purple Foxes. They recently returned from a, an operational uh, combat deployment, doing some you know real world things out in the uh, CENTCOM AOR. They're extremely active uh, doing that stuff. Going back to as a young lieutenant, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was still in my in the phase of just don't get in trouble. Learn the right. learn your system. Learn the learn to fly. Right. Learn how to fly. Be a fly on the wall, so to speak, and just be as good as you can be with this thing. It was a setup question because what, what I'm really interested in is you've got an airframe that's that's going away, right? And, and I've heard you say the term a couple of times, like type model series, which is synonymous with the model of the aircraft, right? Yeah. I think, right? Okay. But now you've got a squadron commander who's in charge of leading and motivating a bunch of Marines who have a pretty good idea that the airplane that they're spending, the aircraft that they're spending so much time learning to fly and understand is going away. 
how are those senior leaders motivating and keeping everybody's eye on the ball who, who knew that basically that, air, that aircraft was going away soon, sooner rather than later, probably? I think it was probably the easiest job they had because at the time, at least in, in my squadron, we, we were so focused on deploying. Okay. You know, there was effectively, there's a war going on and everybody was just focused on make sure you are ready to go. You do not want to be the guy that, that does not get to deploy for whatever reason, whether it's injury or, or otherwise. And so people weren't really focused about that, except it was always something in the distance. Hey, maybe I'll worry about that when I get back from deployment, or maybe that's something that I, I have to consider, you know, right around the time if I'm going to get augmented or whatever that case was. Uh, but for me, I checked into a unit and within a few months, I, I was deploying to Iraq. And so I just did not see that. It just never came across, you know, my mind. I was trying to figure out what to do, how, how to be successful as a, as a lieutenant, because that's when I deployed as a, as a first lieutenant. It, you know, and in fact, as an aside, I'm coming in on my first, my first flight into Al-Takadam, Iraq, and we're on a C-130. And I'm just trying to think about all the things I, I want to do when I, I get there because I, I, have a, I was in like the S4 logistics role trying to figure out what I needed to get done, who I needed to meet. So I knew that I needed to do some of that first before I, I started flying. And as we're coming in to, to land the C-130, it's late at night. I just start to see, I feel this immediate pitch. I see these flares going off and... There's not many places you can look out uh, to see what's going on, mm -hmm. but I can see somebody down on the other end saying, oh, tracer fire. And for most of the people in the, build, in the, uh, in the aircraft at the time, we were all first timers. They, they kind of put some of the, uh, the young bucks together. And so didn't really know what to expect. And everybody's kind of like, okay, well, what do we do here? What's, what's, the, what's our respective role? And then it yanked again. And this time it yanked really hard. To the point where you know butts are out of the seats. I remember thinking, "Oh shit, what's going to happen here?" And I look over at this one captain, and he had. This is. Uh, it was at least his his second deployment, and he's about as relaxed as I've ever seen somebody on a C one thirty. And as you know, a C one thirty is not a relaxing experience. But he's right. managed to to find his little niche, and he's he's curled up on the side. His legs are crossed and he's reading some type of like, you know, a, a classic magazine that a, a Marine would read. I forget what it was. And he's flipping the, the pages, like licking his finger, just one page at a time, deliberately <laughs> just look, you know, scrolling through the pages as all this is going on, like nothing was happening. I mean, if the guy had had tea, he'd be, uh, he'd be drinking it with his pinky out. And I'll never forget that we landed and I asked him afterwards, it's like, how are you so calm in that? Uh, we, we couldn't see anything. We heard people yelling tracer fire, what's going on? That second bank, we knew we were low and it just felt like we were a massive descendant. He goes, you know what? I was calm, but uh, that's because all those enlisted guys on that, on that other side of uh, the row there, that was their first appointment too. But I'll tell you what, when we landed, I, <laughs> I went up to the pilots and I just said, what the hell was that about? We were all shitting in our pants back here. <laughs> so his, his ability just to keep that together and his understanding for, for what was going on, I, I was just so impressed by you know, the empathy that he had, the wherewithal and the situational awareness. I, 
it really did impress me. Right. I won't ever forget that. To answer your question, going back to early on decisions about whether or not to, to transition and it wasn't something that I'd even considered. My goal was to get trained and then be a part of that training process as best I could so that when I was uh, employed as a, a Marine aviator, I could do my job and provide support in the best way I knew how. So as a 46 pilot, you deployed three times to Iraq with squadron. So I've got to imagine that the story that you told about the C-130, you're in the back. I've got to imagine you've got uh, multiple of those kind of stories from the cockpit where you're scared and you're seeing things like like that. And, and you've got Marines in the back. Did that experience inform any of your sort of actions during times in combat where you were scared flying the aircraft? The times that I've been truly scared or fearful in, in combat, almost exclusively I'm in the back getting a ride when you don't have control. And as a result, I, I highly encourage anybody who flies to, to take that opportunity to get into any assault support aircraft and uh, experience what it, it feels like to be a, a grunt. Obviously, most, most people have done that to, to some extent, but for those who have yet to have that opportunity, uh, it should be on your bucket list because it definitely shapes how you fly later on and how you inform passengers about certain information. Now, for us, my first deployment was almost exclusively a, uh, we were a dedicated Kazavec squadron. We rotated out with two other squadrons every six months, and we were based out of Al-Takadam, Iraq. We flew the Mighty Battle Frog throughout the Al-Ambar province and throughout, uh, and then east. Typically, uh, wouldn't go further east than Baghdad. There were a few exceptions to that. Really never ended up further north than Tikrit. Again, a few exceptions particularly on later deployments, uh, but we were kind of in that whole area. The other times I got scared, it usually involved some type of uh, like a loss of essay. There were always spooky things. I mean, it could just partly because you didn't have time and you just didn't want to be the guy messing up. So you were so laser focused on just doing your job right that uh, whatever fear you had uh, would come later. You'd get that like when you land and then think about something and you know maybe it'd be a long night afterwards or maybe that, that would affect you on a later flight, how you did something uh, or where you went. You'd try to avoid a particular area. But fortunately, I was a very, very young buck surrounded by just total pros. And I always knew that that person to my, you know, my left or right and the, the Marine enlisted uh, crew chiefs and, a, and aerial observers uh, behind me always they always had my back and it was definitely that that crew concept that that one team one fight mentality is kind of your own little fire team in the air i never had that fear that uh you might expect except when things came about that were just out of out of your control it really they had nothing to do with the enemy you know it might have been there were some pretty bad dust storms that would come about and it was really never fun flying in those the thought that you might get vertigo and or have to okay you got to climb up uh climbing up above these things it looks easy but you get up to ten thousand feet and you realize you're probably about only you know two-thirds of the way there maybe halfway there a ch-46 flies kind of like a washing machine at ten thousand feet so that kind of stuff was always uncomfortable and i think fear was definitely there that's always present it wasn't in the sense that you might you might normally consider it it was always after the fact yeah. So in the aviation community, I, I just know there's a really high standard there. And, and for obvious reasons, 
but I'm wondering if, you know, up, because you're a squadron, for listeners, you're a squadron commander now, so you're, you're in command of an active duty squadron. But leading up to that, the deployments they had in the 46, was there a time that you can remember where you, where you did something wrong and how it was handled by your command or your CO or, or just your peers? And if nothing like that happened to you, maybe you saw it happen to somebody else. And what I'm trying to suss out there is, is there something that you can convey from your experiences to yeah. younger leaders who are listening now about what happened? Sure. And you're saying in my time in command? Oh, no, I, I was I was saying that you're in command now. So before command. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, how much time you got? There's <laughs> that's where all the best learning occurs. That's that's for yeah, sure. That's, how, that's why the question's so important. Yeah. One of the most important things I've learned is just to ask for help, whether it's how or when it, it doesn't matter just to be able to ask for help. That's not an easy thing to do, particularly the type A personalities that most Marines are and certainly most aviators that I know, that's a hard thing to do when you're going up the ranks. And really what I mean is when you're, when you're learning your craft and you're, you're gaining experience in, in your squadron and your unit, it really is tough to, to know when and how to ask for help. Looking back, that should never be a sign of weakness. I look at that as a sign of strength and it really goes to your credibility. But there's a, an element of that too, that it's not just, hey, I don't know the answer to this, I'm just gonna ask somebody. What you really need to do is pair that and couple that with some grit, being relentless, kind of getting after things. Hey, I exhausted all my resources uh, with the time I had, and uh, I'm still not able to, to answer this question or get this done. How do I get from where I am now to where I need to be? And if you can't think of any other option, then that perhaps is a great time to ask for, for assistance and to do so you know, humbly. Also, if you're asked, uh, you know, going back to what I said before, don't bullshit. Say, hey, that's a great mm -hmm. question. I don't know, and I'll get back to you. And then actually following up. There were definitely times where, you know, like that early on uh, in flight school, uh, trying to just maybe I'll draw it and I'll figure it out on the fly. That just doesn't work. We're not very good at building and flying uh, an aircraft in flight. And so uh, for me, as a young guy, just knowing when to ask for help uh, was something I had to learn. I think another thing too is understanding at some point that the status quo, you know, can and should be changed depending on the situation. You know, the most powerful interest group in any organization is the status quo, right? So mm -hmm. as a senior leader, you're able to to figure that out, I'm told. In my position as a kind of uh, mid-level command, you're able to, to understand that intuitively. I think you've had enough, any, anyone in my position has had enough time to do that. But as a young guy, understanding that the status quo is, is a thing that you should look at and challenge. At least when I went through, that was, that was not at the forefront of my mind. I would imagine nowadays uh, for folks with Force Design 2030, talent management, mm -hmm. those are questions that it's right in their face every day. The key to that is just to, to ensure that you're, you're not doing it alone. You're, you you kind of end up with having a, a bias or some type of bias if you do and maintain that flexibility and, and just be willing to make the familiar unfamiliar and the unfamiliar familiar uh, through that learning process. Lifelong learning is definitely something that I, uh, I love about the Marine Corps. And as an aviator, you absolutely never stop. You're getting tested on something, if not daily, weekly. Yeah. I've got to imagine. You've also got tours through Anglico, 
and then you had some Pentagon tours too. So you've been exposed to a lot of different leaders. And so in this question I'm, I'm about to pose, I, you can go all the way back to your TBS days if you want to, but what, what were some of the best lessons you were taught by some of the worst leaders you've ever come across? Ooh, the worst leaders. I would say you get the behavior that you reward. That's certainly, you know, and I, I can think of one or two individuals when I think, when I say that, just to protect the innocent, so to speak, I won't provide sure, any yeah, of course definitely not, right? if you promote a certain type of behavior, then ultimately, and if nobody says that that's bad, that becomes the new norm. And right. that can lead to the, the normalization of deviance. It can lead to developing poor leadership or at least poor leadership traits or characteristics that, that we don't espouse to. The ones that, that I think that did a good job at ensuring that that behavior was rewarded were the ones that were consistent. And it was about perhaps consistency over intensity with regard to their approach to things. They would definitely play the long game by that closest alligator to the boat in every instance. And really, they would focus on the fix and, and not the fault. That's interesting. And, and thanks for sharing that, because I, I do think that there has to be some sort of conversation or awareness about you know, the folks that are doing the things that get them promoted and then doing the, like you're talking about, your, the Matzik CEO who said, you know, I've been fired. I've been hired one more time than I got fired or anything. <laughs> so, something tells me he wasn't out there being part of the status quo. But then, uh, and I've seen it in my career too. I know people that have you know, ascended through the ranks and I thought to myself, geez, you know, I'm not so sure that he would be there if anybody else, you know, saw behind the curtain that I saw. And again, protecting the innocent. And I think one, one of the things that makes it really hard in the Marine Corps too is when you get to the 10-year mark, you're like, okay, I'm in it for 20 now. I, and so I'm going to do everything I can to protect the last 10 years of my career to make sure I get to 20. I don't want to get kicked out at the 18-year mark or something like that. And I think that that breeds some of it. But I remember when I came out to California, one of the things that I was so impressed and I was mad scampering around for a piece of paper to write it down on was when you started talking about your hacker, your elements of uh, professionalism in your, your oh, squadron. Yeah, sure. you, use this, you use this term hacker. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, can you say that again? And so it, I thought it was so fantastic. I want to surface it here and, and give you an opportunity to talk about what that acronym means, why it's so important and at the forefront of your command philosophy and your squadron. Yeah. So the nice thing is that you have a lot of time to kind of think about how you want to develop your own kind of, what, what are the key points that you want to, to project down and into the, the unit that you're going to be a team member of as a key stakeholder, you kind of try to figure out, well, what's important to you? And so you go to the cornerstone for all the, the incoming or newly or the, or the new commanders, and you have an opportunity to spend a, a week or so with uh, with senior leadership and and get their take on things, but I think more importantly, you know, to your point about having exposure to bad leaders and having exposure to good leaders, you take all that stuff on board, and that onboarding process of all all the things that you've learned takes a decade or two. I've been in now 21 years, and I'm I'm still onboarding with that stuff, and and quite frankly, sometimes there'll be something that comes up, and I'm so convinced of of a particular idea, but I don't close the door fully to, to allowing that to change. Uh, and as a result, I start thinking about, okay, well, you know, there's value to that, right? Because it, it allows you to be adaptable and flexible and to newer and better ideas, particularly those that come from somebody else. 
But that hacker mindset, trying to figure out a way to easily convey and simplify some concepts that I think are leadership oriented. Uh, you know, we've got JJ did tie buckle. We've got the leadership traits, leadership characteristics, and all these great things. We've got our core principles that we talk to. And there were just some things that I, I don't want to, I didn't want to shortchange those. I wanted to make sure that those exist in their own right as they, they should, but didn't want to do it in a way that was separate, but kind of, okay, how can I talk about those things in a different way? And how do I keep that simple? So the Hacker Mindset came about, and really it's just a simple acronym. It stands for humility, approachability, credibility, and then being kinetic, empathetic, and relentless. And so the first three, the humble, approachable, credible aspect, those are down and in things that I want the Marines and sailors of, of at least 267, uh, HMLA 267 to work on. And that's to include myself for ourselves, with ourselves, amongst ourselves. And then being kinetic, being empathetic and being relentless are things that I want us as an organization collectively to work on up and out. So, you know, that first thing, that humility piece, I, I think it has to start, things have to start with humility. You have to start there. Avoiding bravado is one thing, but it's what allows us to, to never stop learning. I think, you know, uh, there's always room to grow. And it's that, you know, referring back to keeping that door open just a little bit with that mindset. I think it's just important to, to understand that everyone at some point has received help based on where they got to today, right? So knowing that, I know I got a ton of help. I still get help daily and I'm always learning. And as a result of that, I, I think it's important to recognize the humility as a, as a starting point. Humility leads to vulnerability, and I think being vulnerable as an individual is important. It's what allows you to learn. It's what allows you to learn quickly. It's what allows you to, to fail. For those who are not vulnerable, they're very resistant to ever failing. And I'm not talking about like a mission, but I'm talking about to, you know, their own personal progress. Because if you're always opposed to that, you're just never going to try new things. You're going to be hesitant to change, and you're just going to go with that status quo piece. If you stay there, ultimately, and, and make no decision to, to do anything, things will change for you and it will be out of your control. So being vulnerable is important uh, as an individual because it, it allows you to say, hey, look, I recognize that in this organization, I'm in a safe space and everywhere outside, all the dangers outside of the organization, those are are constant. I'm, I can't change those things, but everything inside the organization is variable and I can, I can change things inside the organization. So let's all be vulnerable to never stop learning to change. And if we do that collectively, that's where you get that, that safety net. And then ultimately that the humility, the vulnerability, it, it's what allows you to, to be accountable to things. I think humility, the result is accountability in a good way and a bad way. But I think it does, you know, accountability does require us to be vulnerable, and it certainly requires humility as a starting point. The opposite, think about it the other way. Like, what if we started with the, the antithesis to humility? What if we were all filled with, you know, hubris? Right. I was just about to say the opposite would be hubris, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because it, I mean, that's going to increase our chance that we're going to end up with an organization where people are myopic. You've got ones that are closed off and ultimately an organization that's filled with individuals that are just weak or weaker as a result of their own perceived 
you know, importance. And so humility, I think, is important for everybody. And it has nothing to do with rank or, or position. And it just has everything to do with uh, a choice and a mindset. I think in the, the tagline that I've got, it's something to the effect of humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? The, the thing that right. you've always heard. And to me, that's, that's important. So that's where I think we need to start at is humility. Right. Your, your next letter there, that A in hacker is approachability. It's very closely tied to humility. Yeah. That's the, uh, the don't be an asshole clause. Right. I think this is important too, as a, as a leader, as a professional. Let me uh, just back up real quick. When I say leader, and I think this is why it's so great what you're doing, I'm talking about any individual that has a, as a follower or has the capacity to have a follower. It has nothing to do with rank or, or position, once again. And by that definition, by that, we're, we all have the capacity to, to lead. And again, it's, it's a choice because the only thing we all share are our followers, ultimately. But knowing when to lead, when to follow is important. And knowing what goes into that is important. Humility is a great place to start. Being approachable, though, is, is a great place to sustain it because anybody can do anything once. I can get anything done once. I can be that asshole and I can decide that I'm going to pay more attention to the urgent than what's ultimately a value in the long run to an organization, that close alligator, the boat, for example. And sometimes those ones, those, those close alligators are important and we have to address them. But if you bite the hand that uh, you're working alongside, they're not going to, they're not going to extend the other one out to you in time of need. So being approachable is important. And so I was in, uh, when I was at plans, policies, and operations, one of my first weeks there, I was in a position where I, I was a fly on the wall at, in a briefing room. And at the time, uh, I was the secretary of defense. So general Mattis, we all say, right. But secretary of defense Mattis was there and without giving secrets away, basically he just said, somebody asked him a question. He said, Hey, just, just be yourself. And he said, well, wait a minute, unless you're weird, are you weird? If you're weird, don't be weird. Don't be yourself. <laughs> I, I think, you know, part of what he meant was just to be humorous, but I don't think he meant don't be different. I took it as read the room, understand the audience you're, you're addressing and act accordingly. When he was talking about and when I imply that, you know, don't be weird as it mean, as it goes towards being approachable. It's about understanding the environment and the context that you're in. So gain situational awareness and then communicate appropriately. So, and then I just added that, yeah, don't be weird. Yeah, definitely don't be an asshole because nobody's going to want to speak to anybody that that's an asshole uh, in the long run. And you'll never achieve that next thing, which is credibility as well. If you're just a bad person to be around, here's the other thing. And this is really the, the thing that's even more important. If you have leaders that are running around that are not approachable, that are weird or assholes or both, it means that you will never achieve effective communication as a collective organization. And people will tend to work around you rather than through you. Why would I go to a, a leader or an individual that is not approachable? I will avoid them. Think about that. If you are one of the safety backstops, a, a risk mitigation in, in the organization, and you're being worked around by by others because you are not approachable, that's that is the risk right there. And you will end up with an organization that is that is filled with those who lie, hide, and fake their way through day-to-day uh, -day operations. And that's the last place you want to be in. So I always want to just encourage, you know, positive behaviors every day.
Yeah, it's great. I, so it's funny because you said General Mattis. Somebody told me a quote. Somebody who worked for General Mattis told me this quote last weekend. I'd never heard it before. I'm going to repeat it here because I thought it was hysterical. He said, when you're a general officer, you will never get a bad meal or the truth. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. That's you great. You mentioned General Mattis. Yeah, when I heard that, it was great. But a lot of that has to do with, with being approachable, right? Because when he's... I'm assuming he said it. Okay, so let's just assume he said it. That's a pretty approachable statement. That is a way to communicate with people that says, hey, I'm kind of being serious, kind of being funny, you know? Yeah. And I just think there's so much that goes into communication and approachability as a leader because you were saying before we have our leadership principles, ethos, you've got hacker. I I kind of have this theory about intelligence where it's a triangle and, and, every, and each person is made up of a triangle. At the top of the triangle, it's just intelligence. And then one of the bottom corners is your emotional intelligence. And then the other one is your judgment intelligence. And, and each person is some sort of combination. Each leader is some sort of combination of those three things, right? You can, you can be incredibly intelligent and not charismatic and, and, and also be a you know, bad decision maker. You could be incredibly smart. You could be incredibly likable and still be a bad decision maker. And all of this ties together when, when we talk about leadership is that You've just got to be a really well-rounded person in order for people to want to follow you. And when you said before, like, don't be weird, that's just another way of saying, or, you know, don't be an asshole. It's all sort of the same thing. If you're any of those things, nobody's really going to want to follow you. And then you start relying on other things to get them to follow you. And that's where the trouble starts. Yeah. So let's take the triangle again. Let's, if you were to take a blank piece of paper. That's not tested, by the way. There's no dissertation. I've got no PhD in that. That's just... (laughs) Hard to believe. <laughs> I know, right? If, uh, let's take a triangle, draw it on a piece of paper. And at the base of that triangle is the majority of your population in an organization. They're the ones doing the majority of day-to-day work that's very labor-intensive. And as a result, are tasked accordingly. Get a task, complete the task, understand the intent and all that. But typically, that's where a lot of the information lies. That's where all the the day-to-day operations is. And as you go up that organization, the further you go up, the less direct contact you have with that those day-to-day bits of information. So now, in that where you've got that triangle, let's just say you had dropped that triangle into like a cylinder, for example. And that cylinder is, is kind of all the knowledge that is available or is required by that, that organization to, to operate, whether it's, you know, on a, at a specified period of time. And then as you go up that triangle, you start to come against the, the edges of that triangle rather quickly, right? And you go outside the triangle into just the available, what appears to be dead space. But really what's happening, and I think Colin Powell, Joan Powell, had, had talked about this in, in terms of abstraction. And what I remember him saying, and again, I'd have to, we'd have to look this up to see if it was in fact him, but I remember it as being uh, Joan Powell. So I'm going to, I'm going to reference him is that from his perspective as a senior leader, he suffers from abstraction all the time because he's at the top of that cylinder far away from the triangle at all. And he relies on other uh, individuals who are in the triangle to provide all that actual real, ac- the actionable intelligence, so to speak, up his way. And I think that that's why, you know, in the context of approachability, if you aren't approachable, you're never going to get all that 
that actionable intelligence reformation, you're going to be left with all of the abstraction, all the briefs and the policy or any of the, the, the meetings that are, you know, two or three echelons deep, whether it's by a shop or through a command, to the extent that you are not going to be able to be in the position to make the best decision, whether it's a time-based thing, a location-based thing, or just the way your force is structured. And so the argument then is, okay, well, then that's why we push the decision-making down to the lowest acceptable level. And it's not just the lowest level because anybody can do that, but pushing it down to the lowest acceptable level. And that's where I think the art of, and that's been one of the biggest learning points for me is what is acceptable? Is it based off of a qualification? Is it experience? And is if it's experience, is it your experience or is it experience uh, of the other individual? Where do I draw the line in any uh, situation to, to push that decision-making down to the lowest acceptable level? Because in contrast, that it's, it's top-down decision-making at its worst if, if you make all the decisions well above that triangle in the, uh, the area of abstraction, if you will. So Right. Another letter in your acronym, credibility, obviously a huge component of, of any sort of command philosophy or leadership philosophy. But I want to I want to take that word and use it to tie it back into your time at Anglico because, you know, I was an Anglico too, and most people listen to the podcast know that. But I'm wondering if you had any sort of realization of okay, I'm, I'm a pilot. I've been flying my entire career. Now I'm walking into a ground combat arms unit surrounded by enlisted Marines who are 0861s and 0621s, and they've been doing this their entire career. And I and my credibility is all in it in a you know flying an aircraft. Did you feel any sort of absence there and credibility or, or did you, that's not the right way to ask it, but how did you address coming into a unit brand new and saying, Hey, I don't have the same amount of experience you do, but I'm, I'm leading this supporting arms liaison team or brigade. I can't remember if you led a platoon or, or assault. Right. So I, I ended up being assault uh, team lead while I was out there, but it wasn't until I, I got out there that that really kind of took into fruition before I and out there you is know, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, yeah. I right. was in Nari Shara North for however time we were out there, uh, eight, nine months. And so that that was definitely a, a trial by fire in terms of the, the that component. But I had trained up to, you know, through the the Anglico training that is is very much organic. You know, it starts with the Anglico basic course and you work your way up to do uh, some more field experience exercises. The entire time I was doing stuff as a, a Ford Air Controller or JTAC, if you will. Yeah, and you had already been in JTAC training. It, correct. Yeah, I actually I had asked to go through that while I was still at uh, HMM two sixty eight, so that I showed up on day one with my with my jacket, uh, with all my and my qual. But again, you show up basically knowing nothing. At least you show up knowing nothing about Anglico. But the interesting thing about Anglico, as you know, is that it's comprised of some first of all, some incredible individuals uh, across the unit. Uh, what a great, what a great organization! But you've got a lot of pilots in that organization too. And so, when you talk about credibility, you actually come with a, uh, a host of knowledge that, and you end up on day one being the expert in your particular, very focused, albeit, but very particular. Uh, perspective on things. And uh, in my case, it was assault support uh, because I had not yet become an HMLA pilot. So, but into a lesser extent, just aviation in general through the course of 
spending my, my time at, at Anglico, we, we worked a lot with uh, aviation units and it became, I rather quickly learned what I needed to do to, to not just survive, but thrive and how to integrate. And the interesting thing about Anglico is that if Anglico is working with you, especially if you're, you know, from another, uh, another organization, you probably speak a totally different type of uh, lexicon than, you know, the, the Marine Corps, so to speak. That's not always the case, but you got to learn how to speak joint. Uh, you got to learn how to understand uh, different organizations, and then you got to learn how to understand and operate alongside our, our coalition partners. Uh, in my case, it was, uh, it was the Brits and the Danes uh, when I was uh, deployed. So learning how to, to work with those guys, I mean, what better way to start than be a humble, approachable individual right. <laughs> to, to gain some credibility, right? Yeah. So if I knew a joke or two, uh, which I, I didn't, then be the butt end of the joke. And then you, you can gain some, uh, some trust and respect that way. Right. So after, after spending, you know, up to that point, your entire career, essentially like looking out of the glass of a cockpit and now you're on the ground, right? <laughs> what were some of the moments that where you're just like, wow, I, okay, that I never imagined it or geez, I'll never do that again when I'm a pilot. Like I always like to use the joke of, you know, no pilot thinks it's a big deal to land your one grid square away from where you're supposed to until you're the one getting off the back of the bird and, and having to move that one grid. So I almost, did you have any of those moments where you're like- On my first patrol, I almost broke my leg because we landed, they, we flew in on a, uh, it was a Merlin, I think. So this big British version of a, uh, I think this is what they call it. It was a, basically, it looks, it would look like a CH-53 at night, like an Echo model. If, uh, if nobody told you, you know, under the, at the time, the, the green goggles, uh, looking around to say, okay. But then you realize that's, that's not a U.S. Uh, aircraft, that's coalition. So we get in this thing and they required you to, in many instances where we would land, it, there were a high degree, high number of uh, IEDs everywhere. And so in various instances, some of these uh, individuals would require, based on the, the threat level and the uh, the urgency of the mission to to what they call val in the zone. So there'd be somebody out there prior to being able to, if they went on a previous patrol to basically take a, you know, sweep it for mines or uh, IEDs or whatever. And many of these things were from, you know, Afghanistan, you know, circa 1980, 19, uh, you know, were Russian made, so to speak. And there were actual mines. And then others were just, you know, the, uh, the classic violent extremist organization built, IED. But nonetheless, this particular mission was relatively low threat. They were going in, they were going to do basically like a soft knock type thing uh, with this British unit. And we were going to go in and provide uh, supporting arms in the way that Anglico does. They would not land at this one zone that we wanted them to, which was right there. And so we had to land, like you said, and it wasn't that far. It was maybe 500 meters when you look at a, a map, right? But we get off that thing and it's high grass, so you can't see anything. And in Afghanistan, for those who aren't familiar, you know, you've got the poppy that they grow there for the opium. And depending on the month and the, the way they grow that, uh, they'll either flood the fields with water or the water is uh, has been removed from the fields entirely. And so they've got these little mini viaducts that they would have. 
and they would either be flooded with water or they would be completely empty. It was low light. It was pitch black. I could not see a thing. And I'm just, I could hear what was going on in front of me, but it was the Brits and I could hear in front of them, there was a, a small Danish element. And I could hear this like repetitive, like thumping kind of like a little cursing. And then I get to where I, I saw it and I'm like, I don't know what that was about. And then I, I thought I fell off a, uh, like a diving board in a pool into an empty pool is what it felt <laughs> oh, like. Geez. And it was one of those little viaducts that had just been completely emptied out. And it was, it probably wasn't that bad. It was like maybe waste, wasty, but when you're, when you're carrying all your, your kit and uh, you're walking around and you know, you're kind of amped up, it got to you. And right after that, I heard somebody on the radio up front say, Hey, just be advised. There's a, a caution on the, on the trail or something like that. There's a, there's a viaduct there. And I was like, thanks. That was kind of an inch initial, you know, kind of day one. It, it was, it was probably in my second week that I was there incident that I remember at the time thinking, wow, that was, that was not enjoyable. I wish I had landed right next to this building. This would have been so much easier. Yeah. But yeah, we, we definitely did some other, other things that were, that reminded me how great it is to, to be able to go from point A to point B while sitting in a, in a chair. Yeah. So I've got nothing but gratitude and love for every single ground pounder out there. They do some incredibly hard work. They do it with pride and grit and gusto. And, that, you know, and that's why they, they kick ass all the time. But being exposed to that as an aviator showing up with, I think, just the, the mindset of, hey, I am just here to provide support and guide decision making as best I can. And when necessary, when called upon, I will be decisive and as required, if I need to, I will take this, you know, the next minute and a half over and ensure that fires uh, are delivered in an appropriate way, whatever the case yeah. is. So, Tell me about some of the, the best relationships that you had with the other Marines at Anglico. They could have been your, t- your, your FIC team leaders, your SALT team chief. Tell us some stories about some of your great relationships. So everybody from my CO all the way down to the junior Marine that I had in my team was just absolutely outstanding. If nothing else, because they just showed up ready, ready to go every day. I felt lucky. I'm sure that that's not the sentiment that would be shared by, by everyone because no organization is perfect. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, at the time first Anglico was, but I definitely uh, expressed gratitude. And I, I look back affectionately towards my time there. My CO at the time when I, I trained up was Lieutenant Colonel Grice. Yeah, sure. He was a fantastic uh, mentor in many ways, uh, allowed me to understand uh, kind of how to approach certain problems in ways that I had not been ready to do. He had right outside his door uh, when I showed up and checked in a K-bar that was hammered into the side of his his hatch and it had on it you know, a list of, you know, 10 things that he directed all, all Anglican Marines to do. And the first one was everybody fights, you know, that that's pretty easy to think about, but he meant absolutely everybody from the adjutant to, to the most tactical savvy guy that was providing support. And, and that was great. And then uh, when I deployed, they had a change command. I deployed, I deployed with a former enlisted 08, yeah, he's former enlisted uh, artilleryman. And then when he became an officer, he was a Cobra pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Brueggemann, another fantastic leader who gave me the longest rope a leader could give uh, a Marine. And he let me run with it. 
to be frank, he was relatively new at the time. And so I think much of that long rope shared responsibility was through my my direct superior, which was a major at the time, Major Palicelli, who was an 0802, another fantastic Marine. And uh, now all three of those are out now doing great things in, in other ventures, but they were fantastic leaders. They helped me understand uh, how to approach a task with, you know, for lack of a better term, strategic peripheral vision. That strategic peripheral vision allowed you to focus on your task, understand how it was nested in a particular series of tasks, and then what the left and right lateral limits of where you could maneuver would be. Uh, And it was fantastic because it not only showed you how to execute down and in, but how to operate up and out. And for an organization like Anglico, that was absolutely key. But to be fair, those are kind of my direct leaders. I will tell you, the folks that I relied on day in, day out were the corporals and the sergeants and the staff sergeants. They ran that that show. They crushed it. I had an awesome group that was really the ones that was you know in that fight day in, day out. I was just blessed uh, by by their ability to execute uh, in the in the manner that they did because they weren't only really good at their jobs but they did it with that that happy heart and that, that smiling face and uh, they were they were the perfect liaisons to you know, and representatives or ambassadors if you will Americans uh, to to other countries at the time so that was awesome but it was a long deployment and I was also blessed to have peers, you know, captains, those iron captains uh, next to me, left and right of me that were in various fobs that I, I would go visit. And I'm still very close with some of those individuals today. There was a time or two and I needed support, whether it was through my own uh, inability to, to conduct it while on a patrol and get somebody to be in a fob and they'd have what they called the forget what they were called, but they, they had these balloons that had effectively flares on the balloons. Okay. They were fantastic, and and they were in a position, often at times, a better position than I was to to see enemy movements and and conduct strikes on my behalf. That was fantastic. And then there were other times where it was less uh, kinetic, but still crucial that uh, we were provided certain support. And and if nothing else, just a uh, one of those opportunities just to have a a voice to talk to when you were frustrated with whatever it was just being able to, to talk to an individual over stuff. And again, a long deployment was always important to me. And so those are memories that will forever be with me. I think I've been to a couple of their weddings. They've certainly been to mine. So those are shared relationships that I, I hold dear. And one was a tanker. One was a, you know, a grunt. Oh, really? Yeah. My, the oxygen we had at time was a tanker as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was fantastic. Yeah. I, well, I mean, honestly, so I just kind of took a stab at the takers, but because it was kind of funny. But when you think about all the things that Anglico has to be conversant in, it makes sense to have somebody in there who understands the armor mindset. Right. I oh. mean, that just, you know, I didn't have any tankers when I was there. And that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I had one one tanker captain, Captain Nate Goulash. He's going to kill me that I mentioned his name here, but I have tremendous respect for him. Did he end up with a call sign? Uh, I mean, it was we were, <laughs> I mean, uh, call sign chosen and uh, whatever his his uh, associated affiliated number was. I was chosen five four. Oh, they did they ditch the wild eagle call sign? So we were we were wild eagle and we were not deployed when we were deployed. Okay, yeah, to switch yeah, to the, right pick a call sign. So I actually had two call signs. I was also because I was a I supported 
in an AO that was Danish battle space. So the Brits operated there. The only other Americans in our battle space at the time was one of the SEAL teams. So it was that SEAL team and then us. And so every now and then, if I was operating out of the FOB, I had to utilize a Norseman call sign. And so okay. I did that. Okay, that's cool. So so back to the whole, you know, aviate, future aviators and young aviators are listening. Tell me, okay, tell them. I, I know what the answer is going to be, so it's almost unfair. But <laughs> the importance of a ground tour. Uh, I know you're going to say, like, it's important. But some aviators don't do a FAC tour, right, or a JTAC tour. They yeah. do other things, and that's fine. But talk to a young aviator who's hearing this that isn't yet at a point where they're going to do a fact tour, and tell them some of the things that you learned on your Anglico fact tour that were incredibly instrumental to where you are now as a squadron commander, and and why those, why that time on the ground as a fact was was formative to you as a leader. Well, if nothing else, it's why I'm I'm sitting here as an HMLA pilot. I had a. Uh, a need to get somebody in very short order picked up. And the only individual at the time willing to do it was, was an HMLA section. It was one QE, one Cobra at the time. And this Huey came on in and said, Hey, we're, we're good to go. We'll, we'll be there in, you know, a minute or 40. It felt like 30 seconds. By the time I popped smoke, they were already on deck as the smoke was just starting to come out. They were right there and they were there providing support to another aviation element that uh, was un- unable to do, to do so at the time. And part of that has to do with who they were carrying and what they were doing. But the fact that these guys just unquestionably came down, provided support, picked this guy up and took him out was, you know, it's a testament to to the Marine Corps in general, because pick your unit, insert, you know, said name Marine, and that's what happens. But for me, my experience was with the HMLA. And I looked at that and I was like, look, that's I'm going to go with these guys. That's the environment that I want to be around. And again, it gets towards any environment, gets towards uh, trust and respect. And I have uh, just the utmost trust and respect for for the team that that was HMLA at the time. Yeah. So Was it the old November model, Huey, that came no, in? No, it was a Yankee. It, nice, okay. Yeah, yeah. So they it had could, the carry, whiskey it could carry six people then, right? Yeah, I don't know how many they, they were allowed to at the time. Uh, yeah. We only needed one. We sent two guys, one to, to go with the, it was an interpreter who'd been shot. And, uh, and then this guy, you know, what's interesting was that that squadron that was there that did that at the time ended up being, that was HMLA 267. So here I am oh, now yeah. the CEO okay. of that, that very same squadron. So to answer your question in a very real sense, I don't know if it's poetic or, or what, it's certainly karma. I definitely appreciated that, but I'll say to those who, who are on the fence about, you know, doing something else other than flying, there's so many opportunities out there and the Marine Corps is not short on, you know, need to do other things. I wouldn't say it's either in the aviation or on the ground. I think it's just do something else, whether it, even if it's within aviation, if you're committed to that, then okay, fine, but do something else in a different capacity. I mean, we've got a need to have uh, really good instructors and whether it's at a tactical level at MOTS or if it's uh, at the initial level, if that's what you're interested in doing, whether it's uh, at HMLA T303 and any of the the squadrons where we do our our primary and our advanced uh, flight schools, like we talked about, I mean, you heard me talking about my experience. I was lucky, but not everybody was. So it's important to have that formative experience surrounded by 
professionals. And you know, that's what gets to this hacker mindset. You want to have somebody that's humble, approachable, incredible, that's your on-wing, that is your guy or girl that is the one that you're looking towards to say, okay, that's what right looks like. Now I've got a frame of reference. Let's hit this ground uh, running for the next several years. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be on the ground. Now, being on the ground is awesome. And I just had so much fun because it's just, for many people, it's it's what they know before they join the Marine Corps, what the Marine Corps might be like. And it's it's all that more. And the more isn't always better, but there's so much value to to being around some of the professionals that are in the GCE or the, uh, the LCE. And in any capacity, I, I think it'd be just a shame for those individuals who are aviators to, to not share their experiences. Because think about all the things that you know that you would like to share to somebody that's on the ground because it goes both ways, right? There's definitely things, oh, if I'd known that, as if I had been in the aviation unit and I'd known that, I would have done it this way. There are very few opportunities for for grunts, right, to to go over to the aviation side of the house, right. certainly at, uh, you know, in lieutenant and captain level. So take advantage of that because not everybody gets that opportunity. So, right. Now bring back the OV-10s and you can put them in the backseat again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just missed that by a couple of years. Oh, man, but, those are awesome. Uh, yeah. We, you and I, have. I was fortunate and, and honored to talk to a group of your officers at a, at a quick social call when I was out there. And one of the topics that came up was risk. And, and you had reminded me afterwards that you had spent a pretty decent amount of time at PPNO actually writing some sort of risk manual. I may be slaughtering the official terminology here, but it was, am I right? Do I remember that correctly? Or did so, I have 25 years? Yeah, partly. I so I, okay. I did a lot of risk uh, assessment or I prepared briefs that were heavily weighted using risk as a, a means by which to prepare a decision. And I worked in global force management. And so kind of that that's what you do as part of managing the force. You're uh, on short notice if you're trying to move forces from point A to point B or to the midterm, near to midterm over a couple of years or so, as you're planning that out, you're making risk assessments. But in conjunction with that, at the time, I was asked to prepare as best I could thoughts on basically a, take a look at risk and, and write something that was as close as you could make it to you know MCDP for risk. It wasn't a, an individual effort, but I was heavily involved in it. And we got to a point where we got pretty far along and so at some point, some, somewhere in the bowels of the Pentagon, somewhere else said, hey, that's great. We're doing that right now. You know, we were always getting overrun by events. So it was one less thing in our pack. But nonetheless, I have a, a very healthy appreciation for risk and the decisions that senior leaders have to make based off of, you know, in a timely way, based off of imperfect information, utilizing limited resources. And that's why it's so important to have you know, you put your best foot forward to try to to analyze that. And we had, you know, rooms and teams full of of both Marines and former Marines and and individuals that would make these decisions or sorry, that would prep these for executive decision, whether it was at the GOS, the general officer level or at the executive uh, officer level. And then ultimately it would go into big binder and every so often uh, it would be signed off on by the SecDef. But then it gets back to, okay, well, you're doing this, you can approach it just as a, a methodical thing that, all right, you do X, Y, and Z. And just to do that in and of itself takes like a year and a half to learn. That every little bit of language is different. I don't care if you're a, the most savvy 
person on the ground or the the most experienced aviator, you're going to go in day one and not know, you're not going to know squat. I think my first week I had to give a brief on, on this thing that had nothing to do with aviation. It was on high Mars and being utilized in a very particular way for executives. And I didn't even know the format for how to do a brief at because I hadn't been given the opportunity to go to the, you get kind of a week long course on, on how to be a staff officer at the Pentagon. And I didn't even get an opportunity to do that. And I gave this brief and somebody asked me at the end of the brief, they looked at me and said, you're new here, aren't you? And I went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, so, I saw them soon after that. And, uh, you know, I think I got an attaboy or something uh, for the brief, but understanding risk is in, is important. And there's a publication out there that's a joint publication that, that helps everyone out. I think it's called the JRAM or the Joint Risk Assessment Methodology or something to that effect. And it effectively defines risk as a function of probability and consequence. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like risk to me. Yeah. Right. But what's interesting is, okay, well, this is where, this is where in lies the problem. You start thinking about that and you realize that if you look at it just that way, you're going to end up making decisions more often than not based off probability and less often than not based off consequence, because probability is typically is more near term because I can predict a probability in the near term. It's very hard to predict something years out in terms of probability something happening. And the consequence, it's either really, really bad, existentially bad, or nothing at all. Those things that are existentially bad are often deemed, that's nothing that's gonna happen until way, at least not my, my time here. So right. instinctively, or by definition now, if you, you just look at it that way, you are making decisions using a risk methodology that is primed for near-term decision-making at the expense of long-term decision-making. So how does that translate to, you know, what we do on a day-to-day basis for, do I execute whatever I need to now based off of and, and utilize readiness now? Do I prepare for some type of, and get everything I need to for readiness later? And that's usually kind of what, what we would talk about. And ultimately, I think we'd have conversations like, hey, look, risk is based off of different environmental characteristics. And we'd break it up into four different ways. You'd have the simple environments, the complex environments, the uncertain environments, and then the, the ambiguous environments is kind of the extreme. And a simple environment is pretty, pretty obvious. A complex environment is kind of where we thrive. We talk about in terms of steady state operations, everything we do is pretty, pretty complex. And if you do it well, you train to that standard, you're able to operate and thrive in a complex environment. Where we strive to thrive and where we want to be, where we want to fight is when we fight as a warfighting organization is to be in that consummate professional in the uncertain environment, you know, and we talk about fighting and just embracing the chaos or at least better than your adversary does. And then there's this thing beyond that, which is ambiguity. And quite frankly, that's the one that is often just bunched into uncertainty, but ambiguity to an extent is, it's a false perception. Hey, I, I don't know what I don't know. That's uncertain. Ambiguity is potentially I've got a bit of information, but it's actually inaccurate information. So I'm, I'm making decisions based off of in, inaccurate information in conjunction with all this other stuff that's uncertain. And that becomes ambiguous as a result. And that's the, the last place you want to be in. And so we right. talk about, we try to we would lose people when we talk about ambiguity. So we just try to argue that, hey, risk is the effects of uncertainty on our objectives. 
And then you can get all sorts of conversations about, you know, take an example of is risk, there's a bunch of things you can do with it. You can either accept it, you can avoid it, so reject it. You can change the probability, you can change the consequence, or you can basically defer it and you can pass it off to somebody else, right? But then there's this real kind of nefarious one, which is, I don't like any of those. I'm just going to change the risk assessment. Right. You think that's high risk? I'm going to, I don't think it's high risk. I'm going to say it's, it's low risk or vice versa. Oh, you think that's low risk? I actually think it's high risk. And, and that's where, where in lies uh, the problem is because it's subjective. So we'd have to have conversations about, well, again, it could go back to what's risk. And we talk about people, you know, jumping out of a plane, right? What's the risk of jumping out of a plane? People would say, well, that's pretty risky. Say, well, the risk is zero because, and I'm saying this without a, without a parachute. People look at like, what are you talking about? That's, that's really, really bad. Well, but the risk is zero because there's a hundred percent certainty so, that right. that person's not going anywhere as soon as they hit the touchdown. And so trying to understand risk in that te- context. And David, and here's, I think the thing that is most important about risk is that at the end of the day, risk is often viewed in a negative way, but that is only half of the, the problem. And the Chinese have figured this out. If you look at the Chinese symbol for risk, the symbol is actually two words combined. And half of that symbol, it represents the word for, I think, danger. Uh, maybe it's hazard. And, and this is something I would never tattoo on my arm because I'd, somebody would play a trick <laughs> on me. But, right, right. but the other half of that symbol is opportunity. And it's that combination that it's both a, a hazard and an opportunity that I think is so important to understand. So that's what we try to convey, that there's opportunity in every, every one of these decisions in, you know, inherent in the risk assessment methodology. So trying to talk about it that way would, you have to have a lot of long conversations. Yeah. It would just get wild. I mean, I ended up talking to somebody about, I said, hey, look, put your hand in uh, this bowl. And there's a, a, a bowl full of red and yellow balls, let's say. Pick, pick one out. And I'm going to do that to two people. But the first person I, I tell, I'm going to tell them that there are only three red balls and there are 50 yellow balls. And the second person, I'm not going to tell anybody anything. And so if I tell both people, pick out the red ball. And then what's the risk of that? The first person, they're making a risk-based decision. The second person is, is making a decision based off of ignorance. Yeah, right. And I'm kind of leading this conversation because I want to get to the word trust, which, which you also talk about in your command philosophy. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of getting there. But, but, but the risk conversation is interesting because when you said before about you know, probability and consequence, that, that makes a lot of sense. But those two things are kind of in the context of the outcome, right? What, what sort of outcome are you, are you trying to achieve? So you just create a very simple scenario, but what is the probability of something bad happening? And then what is the consequence associated with that? But what is the outcome that you're trying to achieve? Because if you're flying a helicopter, there is a probability of something that could go wrong. And the consequence is very high of, you know, death or loss of equipment at the very, at the very best case scenario, loss of equipment. But the outcome is you're trying to get people from point A to point B, or you're trying to get, you know, troops in, or you're trying to get weapon systems downrange and, and on target. So there's always the outcome. It's is the out is the juice worth the squeeze? There's another way to say it, right? That kind yeah. of thing. But then you started talking about the parachuting thing, and it, and it really made me dawn because 
there's so much risk mitigation that goes into a parachute operation, right? Like you brief it and you say like, here's what happens if you're going into the trees. Here's what you, here are your immediate actions if you're drifting over water. Here's what happens if you're a tow jumper. Here's what happens if you collide with another jumper. Here's what happens if you're main parachute, right? So there's all of these, so you're, you're trying to lower the risk by creating all of these you know, immediate actions that mitigate the risk. So, so what's left over? Well, risk is what's left over after you've thought of everything. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is, right? Yeah. Risk is what's left over after you've thought of everything. And it's the same thing you said before about the risk matrix, right? That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to think of everything when you do those things. Yeah. You're saying, how are we mitigating the risk? And is it low or high risk? Well, each one of those things is a component of it. And if you can mitigate it, then the risk is low. But even after you list all of those things on a on a, a risk assessment, there's still something you're not thinking of. And that's kind of what's left over. And then that kind of leads you into, okay, well, if there's always going to be some sort of risk associated with anything, and you think about force design 2030 and all the decision-making that could get pushed down to the lowest levels, now you're in the trust zone. Now you're talking about, do I trust this person to accurately assess the probability and the consequence of something going wrong. And do I trust them to make a good decision? And I don't know if there's a whole lot of training on that in the military. Yeah, and that's maybe why- Maybe in the aviation community is a lot more, but- They talk about the strategic corporal. I mean, it, it's no less true today than, it, than it's ever been. And you know, we talk about strategic peripheral vision and it's, it's important for everybody to every decision they make may be a strategic one, but mm -hmm. they don't just make the decision. They have to have a really, really broad understanding of how that that's nested in, uh, you know, the context of everything else. And in particular, if we're going to be operating in a disaggregated way under, uh, in a denied environment, uh, with limited communications, it's going to be important for, for leaders to, to be able to, to communicate upfront when they have opportunity to what that commander's intent is right. to promote a, a culture and a climate that is, uh, conducive to, you know, being, uh, approachable so that we can learn quickly and fail as fast as we possibly can so that when it's time to actually head to the, the show, we're, we're ready. Right. And not just ready, which is really, in my opinion, book smart, but prepared because yeah. that's street smart. So I kind of want to wrap up the conversation here a little bit by talking about your graph that we did in your office, which, by the way, my friend Greg Hallinan scolded me for sitting there. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this part of the story, but Greg's like, we have to go. Because you and I were talking about this for a I was so fascinated oh, yeah. by this conversation. And it was like 1800 out there. And he was like, hey, we got to go. And we walked down the hallway. He's like, dude, you cannot sit in the CEO's office at 1800 and have conversations on the whiteboard with him like that because every <laughs> single person in his squadron is waiting for him to go so they can go home too. And yeah. you're just sitting there bullshitting about a graph. I think I'm like, and I feel like a jackass. But yeah. anyway, we, we, we were having this fantastic conversation. I can close my eyes and I can see your graph on in your office on the thing. And you had on the on the y-axis, I think it was performance. And then on the, the x-axis was the trust. And you started drawing quadrants and arrows and I know you can't draw it right now, but I think you could explain it to, sure. to listeners. Yeah, pretty because basic. It's how I mean, you evaluate. Yeah, so it, you got to understand where that comes from. And J Joint Publication One talks about you know some of the fundamentals of war fighting, and two of the key components of that is first competence, and then the other is character. And competence and character, in my opinion, are not necessarily equal 
in their ability to affect an organization, at least not at any given moment in time, because at certain times, obviously, one is going to be more important than the other. But in the long run, to sustain that organization, arguably, character is far more important than competence. And I think that I can say that because we're really good at building competence. And it's really, it's actually relatively easy to build that in the long term. You know, I mean, maybe it takes a year or two years, depending on some of these systems, right? But you can build that competence up. And sometimes it takes a decade. It's a lot harder to build character because a lot of that has to come before that Marine ever arrives, right? A lot of it's formed at boot camp, a lot of it's formed at OCS in terms of how, how to take the best out of you and then project that and inculcate your, you know, that you inculcate into the Marine Corps and, and take all those, those things. But at the end of the day, character and competence are two of the fundamentals of warfighting. But on that scale of trust and competence, that's basically just, or trust and performance, that's simple speak for character and competence. That comes from, there are some organizations out there within the military that evaluate personnel solely on a scale of trust and performance. If you ever have an opportunity to listen to Simon Sinek, and he does a great bit about you know, leaders eat last, and obviously as Marines, we, we know that intuitively, but he talks about this, this scale and how he was talking to, I think the Navy SEALs when they, they select for who's gonna be a SEAL or perhaps who's gonna go to their top tier organization within the uh, SEAL community. Whatever they do, it, they've got a scale on, on trust and, and performance. That's where, they, that's where that language or the lexicon of trust and performance comes from. But it all originates from JP1. And ultimately, if you were to put out on one axis trust and the other performance, it's always better. Every, in an organization, everybody starts out effectively low trust, low performance, because I don't know you and you don't have the skills yet, which is fine. But over time, I want that individual to end up on the top end of the scale, the top right of the scale, high trust, high performance. Everybody wants that. I'm absolutely willing to operate with folks who are also high trust, moderate performers. And in many instances, I'll accept folks who are high trust, low performers because I can build performance quickly, but it's very difficult to build trust. If you end up making decisions based off of high trust and any other, any other thing, you're in a pretty good spot. But if you choose somebody that's based off of high performance alone and they have low trust, that's the definition of a toxic Marine. That can erode a squadron or any Marine organization quickly. And it's, it's nearly impossible to build. I, it's, I can't build trust up in a way that I can build performance. So that's why it's so important, I think, to evaluate personnel based off of you know, competence and character and then weight character more importantly than, than the competence, because ultimately the character is going to beget competence. Yeah, I just thought that, that was such a, a fascinating way to look at it. It made complete sense to me when you started sketching it out and talking to me about it. I, I guess I've always intuitively known it, but I've never seen it just explained like that. And I just, I thought it was so valuable to, for you to take a few minutes I did to too. talk when about I, it. When I saw that as well for the first time, it, you know, when I read it in, in JP1, I thought it was great. And I just try to figure out how, to, how can you apply this to your day-to-day -day job? And that, that, that's what we came up with. Right. Because just intuitively, everybody would understand that they would have a lot more comfort in somebody taking on risk if they earned the trust of somebody saying, like, I trust that person to make the good decision. 
Yeah. And trust takes a while to earn. And you need that character and competence in order to build that trust and that performance. And it's all tied together. And some of those words are, are included in our leadership traits and principles. But when we talk about them like that, I think it's really informative, especially to young leaders who are trying to map out what, what their leadership style is going to be, whether it's checking into their first unit or taking command for the very first time at the company level or the battery level or, or the squadron level. And those things are those things are all really important. And uh, it's clear that uh, you have your entire squadron, you know, adhering to this. I just, you know, I started out the, the podcast and I'll finish it up with this saying that I was just so impressed. First of all, I was really impressed with your captains. I'll, st- I'll just start there. And I said this before, but my group of friends when we were captains were not as good as that group of captains that I met that day with you. And that's not to say that we were bad captains, but that's just how much better the force is right now. That's how much better we're training people right now. That's how much more, how much, I, I think they're just so empowered to think and speak. And, and I just found it really refreshing. It was clear to me that social media can talk all they want to about the retention problem that that is happening in the Marine Corps. I saw none of it in your, well, it wasn't the ready room, but whatever, you, the, the squadron hangout place. What would you call it? The, uh, the legacy room. Oh, the legacy room. The sure. legacy room, right, right. And then later, you know, went out to the flight line and just watched some of the Marines working on a Huey out there. And uh, Nick, Captain Duquette, was uh, kind of walking me around and stuff. And, and you could just tell, like, they were, they were not, they were, they were not having a shitty time out there fixing that helicopter. They're having, I mean, I could just see it. They were having a good time. You know, they were kind of joking around a little bit, but they were, they were fixing something. They were doing their jobs. And that was great. Yeah, they're warfighters. Yeah. And, and just the, the folks in the equipment room, just everywhere I met. And, you know, so I, I do have to give two, you know, shout out thanks. One is to uh, Major Larson Fister. He's your OPSO, right? Not XO. Or maybe he maybe he just moved, right? So he's he's the XO. Yeah. Right. Okay. But he but but he just moved up from the OPSO. Do I have that right? He what was the AMO formerly. That's right. But, uh, AMO. He's been the XO now for a period of time. He's actually okay. he's four deployed uh, he, with our Adbon who left a okay. few weeks ago. And okay. He's in a okay right now. We got to give him a shout out because he he spent an hour trying to teach me how to be a Cobra pilot in the simulator. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll stick with uh, you know. Add five zero fire for effect, but that was fantastic. Really appreciate his time, and of course, uh, Captain Nick Duquette, who you know probably unceremoniously told he had to lead me around <laughs> to all the. He would have done it either what way. What a great guy! Yeah, he so done just, either way. Yeah, need need to give him a shout out because sometimes the the folks that get volunteered to do stuff uh, don't get thanked enough. So, but and thank you for for having me out there and showing me around the squadron and uh, and getting me back in front of some of the Marines. It was really refreshing. Uh, yeah, really Dave, it was uh, great so. to have you, and thanks for having me on this, uh, for sure. It was, uh, it, it's been a blast uh, being where I'm at with HMLA 267, being in the Marine Corps, and and meeting folks like you over the last uh, 20-some-odd years. I, I, it's been nothing but uh, a ton of fun. Yeah, we're all trying to leave it better than we found it. It must be working, because I met those captains, and they're a hell of a lot better than my group of friends were, so yeah, that's off, so... So as we wrap up here, I know we we spent some time talking about Hacker and H-A-C-K-E-R, and then I got a sidetracked after C, but there's there's K-E-R. I was wondering, as, as, as the tail end of the, the show here, could you just quick, quickly hit on the K-E-R so it kind of all gets together and everybody understands the, the entire Hacker um, term? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dave, for uh, bringing that up. Yeah, so humble, approachable, credible down and in is very important, but then ultimately you've got to do something with all that stuff. And that's the up and out piece. As an organization, foremost, we're kinetic. And as a Marine Corps, we are purpose-built to break things and kill people full stop. But that's from an operational standpoint. 
there's more to it than just that. And from a moral standpoint, as with any organization, we've got to have a firm grip on our moral compass and maintain that all the way throughout. And we also have an opportunity to expound upon what it means to be kinetic. Uh, It's not just about breaking and killing. It's about movement and maneuver. And we're very familiar with both. And as a result of that, I like to think about us as an organization as having that bias for action. And that's what it really means to be kinetic. I was listening to Joe Mahoney in a meeting once, and he was talking about extremism. And we were talking about it in a, in a bad way. It was good. This is back in 2020, and there's a lot of stuff going on out, out outside of the base. And uh, he said, hey, look, the only extremism I want to see is in combat. And uh, you know, I thought that was really well put. Uh, that's about being kinetic and having that bias for action. But I want to make sure that when we are kinetic, we don't lose that, that moral compass. So as a result, you have to pair that bias for action with the next component, which is to be empathetic. And that is really about having a bias for understanding. And in my opinion, empathy is often misconstrued as sympathy. And not to, to say that sympathy isn't important, but as a Marine Corps and as a, as a warfighting organization, empathy is absolutely paramount. And General Berger talks about it in some of his recent uh, writings. And he talks about leaders at every level have to Uh, share mutual uh, respect uh, and act as those empathetic leaders who support and assist those who come forward uh, seeking help. And so I think it's really important to be an empathetic leader. It comes from a position of strength, not one of weakness, and it's built upon a a foundation of humility, trust, and respect. It's about taking care of those Marines. And then lastly, I think it's just worth uh, saying that uh, you have to be a relentless organization. You can't give up at the first sign of adversity. And it's about doing things in ways that go beyond easy and beyond the difficult. And I used to say it's about never, ever, ever giving up. I'd like to caveat that with saying, unless it's perhaps a tactical withdrawal so that you can fight another day or do something else, or if some some other better opportunity comes along uh, or better option. But you have to understand the why to be able to do that. And being relentless is about striving to be better as an organization every single day. And it's important to understand that when I say that, it's not about doing whatever it takes, doing things that are at all cost or doing things, you know, getting it done no matter what. That kind of language is fine in sports parlance, but I think it does a disservice to us because if I do whatever it takes, that means I might do something that is illegal. If I do things, no matter what, that means I might be doing something that is unsafe. And if I do things uh, potentially at all costs, that means I might do things that are unethical or against our, our core values. And I, it's not things, being relentless is not about going around those things. It's about working through that process and through that framework, that leadership rubric that we've established for ourselves And that's what it means to be a hacker, uh, at least at HMA 267. Humble, approachable, credible, kinetic, empathetic, and relentless. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot for taking some time and good luck to you and the squadron on your upcoming operational commitments. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and maybe getting a couple pictures from you from wherever you end up heading out to. Will do, sir. Thanks a lot.